Uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, it's actually a few more people than I thought would show up. Was it, was it the word weird that got your attention, or is it because there's Kids Club tonight? Okay, I'm a little weird. That makes, that makes the most sense right there. So, um, uh, the reality is that if you, if you begin to study Zechariah in context, you begin to realize that they didn't think it was that weird. It made complete sense to them. So, it may be a little weird to us, but I'm going to try to make it so it's understandable, very clearly understandable and relatable to us in our uh, context today. So, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're going to be here another three Wednesday nights after this. And then we break for Easter. I have no idea what's going on in May, but I know in June I'm coming back to do three weeks in uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which I think will be pretty exciting and interesting. Um, how many of you, I don't even know how to ask this question. Zechariah is a weird book. To, I mean, it is, it's a strange book to study, right? Like, we're going to take this on. Uh, how many of you, when you're th- kind of thinking about just read, doing a little Bible reading, you just, eh, I'm going to turn to Zechariah, you know? Doesn't happen very often, right? Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about Zechariah is that if, if you don't think it's that important, I want you to consider this. This ought to set the tone for all of this. There are 41 specific references in the New Testament um, to Zechariah. 41. And there's another 20 uh, allusions where, in other words, the name isn't specifically mentioned, but everybody knows it's Zechariah. So you're talking about 60, 61 times in the New Testament, and primarily these citations are by Jesus. Um, so 61 times in the New Testament, that's a lot. Um, you're, you're talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then probably uh, Zechariah. So this is kind of a big deal. Um, and some of you will be very excited by this. Some of you will need to take about 20 minutes and just rest. Uh, the next 20 minutes and just rest, but um, I've been hiding this, but I, I have my laser pointer. What does that mean? Map, yeah. So we're going to... What I want to do is go through the time, this, this timeline of uh, the Old Testament history, give you an idea of what's going on. I'll kind of be working between the timeline and the map. Is the map up there now? Yeah, there it is. Okay, because I need the whole area uh, that we cover um, for this to make sense. But I think it's just good... It, my goal is that someday when we have the memorial service for Frank Switzer and I'm gone, you will have an understanding of the ancient biblical maps and the timeline of the Bible, just down cold. That's kind of my goal. Jesus is irrelevant at this point, so we just want you to have history and, and maps. Okay, some of you are like, really, Jesus? No, I'm kidding about that, so... All right, so it'll help us to put everything into perspective. So I'm going to go way back. Starting in 1850 B.C., uh, that's when Joseph and, and his family moved to Egypt. And so they're there, okay? Um, and then about 400 years later, we have the Exodus going through here, and pretty much they're wandering around somewhere in this area for 40 years in the wilderness. Um, from, 1450 to 10, uh, from 1400 to 1050 A.D., this is now um, 
Joshua finally leads them into the promised land right here, into Jericho. Uh, and you have that time of uh, Joshua and Judges. So it runs about uh, 350 years. So you get to about 1100, okay? Maybe 1050. Uh, in 1010, David becomes the second king after Saul. We sort of just pass over Saul and get right to David. In 1010 BC, he becomes uh, king. He's king for 40 years until 970. In 970, his son Solomon becomes the third king of Israel. And Israel at this time pretty much encompasses all of this area right here. And it's one nation. But then uh, after Solomon dies in 931, his sons take over. And there's an argument about how much to charge for taxes. There's an argument about tax rates. No kidding. So some arguments in government never change, right? We're still arguing about that today. And there were people saying, we need to tax the people more, and there were other people saying, we need to tax the people uh, less. And so they got so angry with each other that they actually split the kingdom. So the southern kingdom down here was Judah, with Jerusalem as the uh, capital, and there were two of the ten tribes down there. The northern kingdom uh, was up here, which is, which is in New Testament time, is Samaria, uh, and uh, their capital was uh, Samaria. And that's the way it was from 922 until 722. In 722, the Assyrians, Nineveh, after <clears throat> Easter, we're going we're gonna to finish the Love Walked Among Us, and we're going to do Easter, and after Easter, we're going to do five weeks in Jonah. Jonah is all about this prophet that does not want to go to Nineveh and, and preach the gospel, the Old Testament gospel to them. But, um, and the reason is because these were the nastiest people ever in history, probably. But in 722, they came down this way and came in from the north, and they sacked uh, the northern kingdom, Israel. And at that time, God held them off from just continuing on through and, and taking Judah as well. So Judah remained intact for almost another couple of hundred years. Uh, in 605 B.C., so almost a couple hundred years later, Assyria is no longer the superpower in the world. Now it's Babylon and Babylonia. So in, in um, 610 to 612, Nebuchadnezzar led the Babylonian armies up into Assyria and sacked them uh, and Nineveh. And then he just kind of started meandering his way this way. It took him a while, but eventually in 605, he came down here to the southern kingdom, Judah, and he sacked Jerusalem the first time. They went back again in 597, and then once again in 586. And the reason he had to do it three times was in 605, he established that he went in and, and conquered it but, uh, and, and took the exiles back to Babylon, but left some people there and said, you need to pay tribute. And then they had some kings who really didn't want to pay the tribute. And a couple times it, it got Nebuchadnezzar mad enough that they went back in twice. And in 586, he was so mad that he gave instructions to them to go in and actually dig up all of the foundations of every building that was in Jerusalem. Dig it up so that they couldn't rebuild anything ever. So it was completely uh, decimated. During that time, Jeremiah's alive. He's writing a lot of stuff. He writes lamentations during that time, as well as preaches a bunch of other stuff as well. So you've heard me tell the story, maybe. You've heard me tell the story of then in 539, actually, Halloween uh, night, 539 B.C., which they didn't celebrate Halloween then. I'm just giving you that for contemporary reference. But Halloween night, um, the Medo-Persian army 
came in and figured out how to rewrite the Euphrates River, uh, reroute the Euphrates River, which ran through Babylon, um, and they were able to just reroute it, and they actually took Babylon. They didn't have to overcome those incredible walls around Babylon. They took Babylon by marching in through the, the bed of the river once the river was rerouted. And it's said that they were able to take Babylon without really, quote, firing a shot. With, that, with very few casualties, they were able to take Babylon. So at that point, 539 um, B.C., uh, Persia uh, becomes the new empire, and there's their capital, Susa. And so in 538, uh, the king of Persia, um, uh, Cyrus, makes a d decree that all of the captured people, uh, the Babylonian exiles, were free to go back to um, uh, Jerusalem and begin building Jerusalem. So this is 700 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. So in 538, they started the trek back to uh, Jerusalem. And that's kind of where we pick up the story of Zechariah. You'll hear a lot of references about uh, sort of that um, timeline. Um, Cyrus's uh, idea was to go local. He really believed in the local economies and, and, and people taking care of themselves in their local context. But of course, you had to pay tribute um, in, in order to be able to do that. So the exiles began to return, but not all the exiles returned. If you know the story of Esther, you know that some of the exiles went from Babylon. Instead, they went over to Susa and decided to live in, in Persia. They, they, they didn't really feel like they wanted to go back and help rebuild, so they actually moved to Susa. And that's where you get the story of um, Esther, which I'll get to in a second. But in 538, they begin to rebuild. The exiles who came back, about 50,000 of them at that time, begin to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. In 535, three or four years later, uh, the work on the temple sputters, and they quit rebuilding the temple. They're continuing to kind of work on Jerusalem, and especially their own homes, if you know the story of Haggai. And we reviewed Haggai uh, late last uh, fall. Um, so they quit working on the temple. In 521, Darius becomes the new king in Persia. And, and in 520, Haggai and Zechariah begin their public ministries. And both of them are saying, you need to rebuild the temple. Haggai is especially focused on rebuilding the temple. Zechariah says the same thing, but he's got a lot of other issues that he's going to preach on. But Haggai was specifically, start rebuilding the temple. You have to get to back, back to work on uh, the temple. 519 and 518, Zechariah kind of continues with his preaching ministry and his dreams and all of that stuff. Um, and then they did rebuild, uh, begin rebuilding the temple again in 520, and it was completed in 515. So the temple finally gets rebuilt, completed in 515. Uh, Zechariah chapters 9 through 14 are actually proclaimed uh, many years later in the early 490s, or uh, I'm sorry, the late 490s or early 480s um, BC. That's when we get chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah. In 486 BC, uh, Xerxes becomes king of uh, Persia, and some of us, we refer to him as Xerxes the Jerxes, if you know about him from uh, the, the book of Esther, but that's 486, and that's when the book of Esther starts uh, to be recorded, and, and that whole story unfolds. Uh, again, those of you who've been around here a while, you know that Esther's like one of my favorite books in the Bible. I absolutely love Esther. I love teaching Esther. Uh, there's so much in there, and again, it's one of those, I think, forgotten books unfortunately. Um, in 445 B.C., 
Uh, Jerusalem had been rebuilt, the temple had been rebuilt, but nobody ever rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. So now you're approaching 100 years of Jerusalem being rebuilt, and they still hadn't rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. So uh, Nehemiah has this vision, and he goes to uh, the king, and the king uh, gives him all the documentation, all of the money, all of the materials he needs to go to Jerusalem from Susa and rebuild the wall. And he finishes the wall in, I think it was... um, something like seven and a half uh, weeks, which was a pretty incredible that he was able to do that. And he faced a tremendous amount of, of opposition. Who's read Nehemiah? It's a w- wonderful, wonderful book that, that helps explain all of that. After Nehemiah, the Greek Empire comes. Persia sort of fades away. The Greek Empire comes. Uh, then the Roman Empire comes. And then in 3 B.C., Jesus is finally born. In 30 A.D., we have the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. From about 44 A.D. to 95 A.D., um, we have all of the New Testament letters, the the 27 New Testament documents, the Gospels and the letters, uh, are all written. And then finally, in the year 2011, East Valley Bible Church and Praxis uh, Church merged to become Redemption Church. And so you're up to date now with all of the really important uh, stuff. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Zechariah. He's a Levite, which means he's from a priestly family. So he's a priest. Uh, and he was born in Babylon during the exile. Toward the end of the exile, he was born there. Um, and, and he's both a prophet and a priest. So he's not just a priest, but he's also a prophet. So he, he proclaims and he ministers. He, he teaches and he shepherds. He's kind of like a uh, what I would call the vision of a 21st century uh, church pastor should be. Somebody who not only teaches but also uh, shepherds. Okay? The name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. Uh, if you know anything about the Hebrews and their history, names mean something. Names mean a lot. So it's interesting to find out what their names mean. He's a contemporary of Haggai. By the way, if you're looking for uh, Zechariah in the Bible, it's really easy to find. Just go to Haggai and then go to the next book to the right, and you're all set, okay? Um, So he's about the same time as Haggai, and so that's why it's there. They're toward the end of the uh, prophets uh, in the Old Testament. Um, So he's a a contemporary of Haggai. He's also a contemporary of Zerubbabel, who was the governor of, of um, uh, Judah at this time, Judea at this time, and he's a contemporary of Joshua, the high priest, as well, and, and all of them are characters in the story of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah and his family, including his grandfather, came back with the first contingency of returning exiles in early 538 uh, B.C., and like I said, there were about 50,000 of them at that time that returned. And Zechariah was actually a fairly young man when he started his, his public ministry in 520 uh, B.C. And he writes what we call apocalyptic literature. If you know about, in order to be competent at reading the Bible, you have to understand literary genres. It's really important. And there are several different types of genres, uh, literary genres in the Bible. You have this thing called an epistle, which is a uh, it's, a, it's an uh, ancient Mediterranean and Greek form of a letter that's written in ancient Greek. We have a bunch, bunch of those in the New Testament. We have something called a gospel, which is kind of a biography, but, but not. It's, it's, it's unique pretty much to 
the Bible, but the way you read a gospel is different than the way you read an epistle or a letter. Um, you, in, in the Old Testament, you have uh, historical narrative, you have law, you have um, poetry, you have uh, prose, you have, um, and, and you have this apocalyptic literature. By the way, we have apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Much of Revelation is apocalyptic re- literature. In the Old Testament, we have Zechariah for sure. Some of the other um, uh, prophets get into it a little bit. And certainly, if you've ever read Daniel, um, I think some of you know, you've heard this from Tom Schrader. Uh, Tom Schrader used to teach Daniel a lot, and he loved teaching Daniel, but he would only teach um, the first six chapters. He would never teach chapters 7 through 12 because it's apocalyptic literature. But his line was that, Chapter 7 through 12 are, are filled with um, dragons, dreams, and visions. And he said, I saw enough of that in the 60s, so I'm not going to teach that at all. So, and if you know Tom's background, you understand why that is. So anyway, apocalyptic literature is revelatory. It's very symbolic. There's a code that you have to sort of break down and, and figure out. Uh, there's a lot of what we call reference. That's a referent with a T-S at the end. A referent is... Uh, they're talking about this, but they're really talking about that. It's a referent to that. Okay, so you have to understand how to be able to connect these things, and that's one of the things that we'll try to do as we work um, uh, through this. And so it's hard to read. If, you, if you're brand new to the Bible and you start reading uh, Daniel chapter 7 through 12, you're, gonna, you're really going to be confused. If you read Zechariah, you're going to be confused. If you read Revelation, you're gonna, it's going to be hard um, to read without understanding the, the genre. Um, by the way, Allison DeSerafino, um, I don't know, maybe eight months ago on a Saturday morning actually taught a class on all the different biblical genres, and it was really good and really helpful. I'd love for her to do that again. It just helps you to become a better reader of the Bible, to know what kind of literature you're engaging and how to interpret it. Okay? Uh, some people say, do you take... Um, do you take the Bible literally or do you take it metaphorically? And the answer is, well, yes. Okay, it depends on the genre that you're reading. You have to be, understand how to be a competent reader. So um, the, the book is kind of broken down in, in this way. Uh, the, the introduction is chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And that's from, we have a date on that. It's specifically written in October uh, 520. He then receives eight visions on his very restless night, eight visions in one night, very restless night, the, the date is February 15th, 519 B.C. We get that from verse 7 of chapter 1, followed by four messages that he preaches on December 7th, 518. Those messages start in chapter 7 and go through chapter 8, and then chapters 9 through 14 were, were uh, preached and recorded in the, in the late 490s, or um, I'm sorry, the, um, yeah, the late 490s or the early 480s. And the reason we know that is because Greece is mentioned at that point, which would be interesting. Uh, Zechariah is intense, intensely messianic, keeps pointing to the Messiah, so much so that many scholars call Zechariah the mini-Isaiah. Okay, again, if you don't think Zechariah is important, there are scholars calling it the mini-Isaiah, and Isaiah is just loaded, okay? One of my secret dreams at, Re- Revelation, at, at Redemption Church is that someday we'd actually teach through Isaiah. I just don't know if we have the 20 years to be able to do it. That's one of the problems with that. Um, 
But it's also different from much of the other prophetic material in that it's very future-oriented. So most prophetic material is not necessarily futuristic. It, prophetic material is um, saying, here's what God tells us to do. Here's what you're doing, which isn't what God is telling you to do. Based on what we know about what God is telling you and what you're doing, here's where you're going to end up. It's an educated estimation of what's going to happen to you. Okay, And, and that's prophetic um, uh, material. But there's also, occasionally, it's the minority, but occasionally you have that prophetic material where it is strictly futuristic in its sense. And there's a lot of that futuristic stuff in Zechariah. So the, uh, the interpretation is not quite as clear. And so it'll take us a little bit to kind of work through that and try to figure uh, that out. So one question that's asked is, all right, so in Zechariah, there's this uh, concentration on the, on the Messianic or the Messiah, the coming Messiah, and on the future. So why was that so important during Zechariah's timeline, which is 520 um, B.C. to about 485 or uh, 486 B.C.? Why is that? And the reason is because even though the Jews had been restored to Judah and Jerusalem, life was still very hard. They felt overpunished by the exile, and some people would argue that they were. Even God might agree with that argument, as we will see. And there was little hope that things would be different going forward. So Zechariah was coming with a, with a really strong message of hope. There's lots of correction in Zechariah, but it's also a really strong uh, message of hope. So here are, the, um, here are the themes of the three major sections in the book. Chapters 1 through 6 encompass the eight visions. And the eight visions essentially say, build the temple and don't worry, God's going to avenge you for what happened to you during the exile and at other times. Uh, chapter 7 and 8, the second major section of the book, chapter 7 and 8, is what I would call true religion. There's a lot of, it's, it's, it's very similar to what James says in James chapter 1 verse 27 um, when James uh, says, this is, this is true religion to take care of the fatherless and the widows and the poor. Okay, and that's essentially what Zechariah is saying there. Now he's saying to the people, this is what you need to be doing. And then the last section, major section of the book, chapters 9 through 14, which he writes later in the 490s and 480s, he's talking about enemies, leaders, shepherds, re the remnant, and the goal of history. And the interesting thing is that the enemies and the shepherds are not necessarily different people. We'll get into that and we'll see that. That's really interesting I think, in, in, during the last uh, week, the fourth week. Um, so the overall meaning for us, here you go. Number one, Zechariah clearly shows us that God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign. He's in control, in charge of everything. History, he has the right to say this is the purpose of history. That's the most obvious theme in Zechariah, the sovereignty of God. But also we see that God forgives. God restores and purifies God calls us. God expects transformation. And the reason he can expect transformation is because the transformation is his, not us. It's empowered by him. And then finally, this is an interesting one. God desires harmonious civil and religious leadership with his people. In other words, he believes that the government and the church should be able to work together. Doesn't that sound strange in our context today? But you see this message in Zechariah. 
which I think is interesting as well. So here's a lineup of the eight visions. I know a lot of people are excited about the visions, so here they are. The first one is the horseman among the myrtle trees. We'll look at that tonight. The second one is the four horns and the craftsman, the four craftsmen. We'll look at that one tonight. Uh, the surveyor, then, is number three. The vision of Joshua, the high priest, is number four. The golden lampstand and the two olive trees is vision five. The flying scroll, that's kind of cool. Get a little Aladdin kind of vibe going on there, uh, is vision six. The woman in the basket, that's, a, that's maybe the freakiest vision, okay? Vision seven, and then the four chariots is vision eight. And the visions tend to follow this pattern. There's introductory words. There's a description of what's seen in the vision. There's Zechariah questioning the meaning of the vision. And then there's some sort of an explanation about the vision from an angel. Vision 4 does not necessarily follow that, that pattern, though. So that's why I say mostly they tend to follow this pattern. Vision 4 does not have any of the explanations from the uh, angel. It's pretty clear what's going on in that vision. And here's our tentative schedule, and yes, it's really ambitious. Uh, tonight we're going to do an introduction, which we just did, and then the first two visions... Uh, next week, we'll do visions three through six. Uh, on April 3rd, we'll do visions seven and eight. We'll summarize it, and then we'll do chapters seven and eight. And then April 10th, we'll do chapters nine through 14. Obviously, we're not going to read every single word of chapters nine through 14. So here we go. Let's look at verses one through six of chapter one. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, so Edo is his grandfather who came back with him uh, during the ex uh, from the exile, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command, commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So what historical event or events is... Zechariah and God are Zechariah and God re referencing here. What? The, the run up to the exile. He's saying, I, I warned you. And by the way, you could also say this about the run up to the Assyrian conquest in 722. I warned you. I kept warning you. I kept telling you. The prophets kept telling you. The prophets kept warning you. But you decided to go your own way. And so here's what's going to happen. First the Assyrians, now the Babylonians, and now the great uh, exile. So if you read through all of the Old Testament, <clears throat> the historical parts, you see what, what's commonly known as the, re the cycle of rebellion for God's people. So God works magnificently in their life, and now they're at the top of the cycle. And God and his people are one, and everything's hunky-dory. And that lasts for... Five minutes. And then the people begin to rebel, and you start to work down this cycle. They're rebelling, rebelling, and, 
and they don't seem to see the correlation between them rebelling and the fact that things are getting worse and worse and worse for them. And they keep rebelling, and the more they rebel and the worse things get, the, the more they spiral downward, and the angrier God they get, they, they blame God for everything. So they keep going all the way down, all the way down, all the way down. God decides to do something about it. It takes them a while, even once God does something about it, but then they start to realize, all right, maybe we need to go move back up here. And then something magnificent happens, and they get kind of restored to God, and they're one again, and that lasts again for about five minutes. And then they, it's just a cycle over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. You see this. Does that kind of feel like our lives at times as well? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's certainly relatable. And the problem is that people then and people now, see, people have never changed, and neither has God, you know? Oh, but we're so much better than we are now. Yeah, our technology's better, but we're not better. We're the same. Our nature is exactly the same, okay? Uh, and so people don't seem to understand the eternal and always relevant nature of God's Word. In instead, they choose to rely on their own wisdom. We, we, we want to rely on ourselves. We think we know better, Okay? And, and just look at what he says in verse, let me reread verse 6. I want to pick apart the first half and then the second half. But verse 6, he says, um, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts pr proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. And right before that in verse 5, he says, Your fathers, where are they? Your prophets, do they live forever? So, Here's what God is saying. He's saying, first of all, those of you, your fathers, who decided to go their own, rebel and go their own way, what happened to them? They're dead and gone. They weren't that smart. But the interesting thing is that also the prophets who had my teaching and my words, they're gone too. So what's left? My words are still left. The words are still true. The statutes are still true. So the rebellious and the prophets are both gone, but my words remain. My statutes remain. And, and, and I think here's one way that I see that manifest today. So um, I'm on Twitter because I'm an older white guy, and apparently that's where older white guys hang out now these days. So I was told that by all my students at Paradise Valley Community Church. So uh, Paradise Valley Community College. Anyway, that's where old white guys hang out. So um, uh, me and my six and a half followers. So um, I, I follow like 200 different people. Two of the people I follow, anybody ever heard of G.K. Chesterton? Okay, so G.K. Chesterton was this uh, Christian philosopher, uh, English, uh, was born um, in the late 1800s and lived until I think it was about uh, 1937 is when he died. Okay, so I follow him on Twitter. How do you follow him on Twitter? He's dead. Well, there's somebody who's got his, his Twitter account and they're reading through all of what G.K. Chesterton wrote and taking some of his best quotes and posting them on Twitter, okay? All right? <clears throat> Here's something he tweeted, just, or the person running his account tweeted, uh, earlier this week. And I'm, I'm, I think I've got it pretty much down, but here's what it said. Um, when you have a sexless society, now is that relevant to today? transgenderism, uh, sexual fluidity, gender fluidity, all of that stuff, right? Okay? This, this guy's talking about this in the early 1900s. 
He sees this coming in the early 1900s. He says, when you have a sexless society, the upside is that you have equality and harmony. The downside is that it only lasts for one generation. Because there's no reproduction. There's no function. And God is all about function, okay? So, here's my point. G.K. Chesterton, God's prophet, is dead. But his words are living on. These words that he specifically is pulling out from the Bible, those live on. Here's another one, Charles Spurgeon. He's been dead quite some time, right? He has an account on Twitter too. He's tweeting all the time, all right? And it's amazing how those words are living on. What he's, what he's tweeting, you know, they're God's words, even though the prophet is dead, okay? So have all the people who have been rebelling against God. They're also dead. So you can see sort of a... Um, a, a contemporary manifestation about, of that. But then the other part of verse 6 is where God is saying, look, re repentance is a, is a requirement of the life of those who claim to be God's people. Repentance. A turning from your sin. An admission that you are wrong. And working towards a, a different way. Turning from sin to God. Turning away from self and toward God and toward others. It's repentance. Many people claim to be God's people, including God's people in the Old Testament. They claim to be God's people, but they don't want to do it on God's terms. They only want to do it on their terms, right? Okay. Well, that doesn't work for God, and he generally has the last say. Okay. Grace is a wonderful thing, but you realize that some people use grace not for um, freedom, but for license, so if you're going to use grace for license, you have a misunderstanding of grace, you're going your own way, you have a better idea than God, you really don't get it. You're really not following Jesus. But a lot of people use God's grace as a reason to do whatever they want, license, okay? God calls us to repent. Okay? His grace calls us toward repentance, toward something even better than license, okay? So... Martin Luther, the great reformer, I think this might be his best quote, and he's got a lot of good quotes, but this might be his best quote. The whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. Are you living in repentance? Because everywhere you go in the Bible, God is calling, you know, you need to turn to me. You need to turn. You need to come to me. You need to repent. So Zechariah is making this point, and just like today, he's reminding us that God is God. He alone sets the agenda. And here's a key about God. That, you know, a lot of people read the Old Testament, they say, I don't like that God of the Old Testament. He seems really angry and violent, right? You've heard that, some of you have heard that before, okay? God's anger is never a temper tantrum, but rather it's righteous anger against sin and injustice. We just have to understand that, because that's what it is. So, that's the introduction, and then we get into the first vision, which is the horseman and a man among the myrtle trees. The point of this, here you go, is that God's anger against other nations and his blessing on a restored Israel. So right out of the gate, he says, all right, you're feeling a little overpunished. Here's what's going to happen. On the 24th day of the 11th month, so now you're at, at February 15th, 519 B.C., which is the month of Shabbat, on the second, in the second year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. 
Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. That's an interesting phrase. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry those 70 years? And the Lord answered, Gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. I was angry at my people, but these nations furthered the disaster. So we'll talk about that. That's an interesting point. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So what do the horse colors mean? <laughs> right out of the gate, I'm going to disappoint you. We don't know. <laughs> We're not sure, okay? There's conjecture and speculation. Uh, and, you know, there's four uh, horse-drawn chariots in Vision 8, and they are of different colors, but they're different colors. And so there's no help there. And I know some people are like, well, what about Revelation 6? Good point. Revelation 6, we have the white, red, black, and pale horse. And we know in Revelation 6 that those colors do stand for something. In Revelation 6, the white horse stands for conquest. The red horse stands for blood, blood of atonement. The black horse stands for justice. And the pale horse stands for pestilence and death. Sounds like a lot of fun. Okay. So we don't know exactly if the colors mean anything. There's speculation, but we, we, we can't settle on anything. Okay? But then the next question is, okay, so why does the earth remain at rest? Verse 11. That seems to be a key item here. It says, the earth remains at rest. The horsemen, when they went out and they surveyed what was going on, they found that all the nations were at peace, but Judah, Judea, Israel was not at peace. The rest of the world was at peace, but God's people were not at peace. They were overwhelmed. They were feeling persecuted. They were having a hard time. They were oppressed, okay? So God's people were in disarray. Think about this. When God's people and God's will are seemingly under control by the culture and the rest of the world, when God's people have been put in their proper place by the world and the culture. The world is at rest. The culture is at peace. They've taken care of that, that reminder that, that we are living for ourselves, we're living in sin, we're living in wickedness, we're living in darkness. We've, we've taken care of that. We don't have to put up with that anymore. Now we can be at rest. We can be at peace. That's the picture here. All the other nations are at peace, but God's uh, people are not. They're resting. Okay? This is why Jesus was, and I would argue is, so hated. He was hated in his time. 
He's hated now as well. You think about all this love walked among us stuff that we've been going through, and we're seeing that from, from the, the status quo, the establishment. The, the predominant culture was unhappy with the way Jesus was pushing against them. He and his teaching were disruptive to that status quo. Anyway, this is the reality of the context that all of us live in as God's people. And we have always lived in this context. A lot of us today, we, we have this idea, we, we think, okay, we, we just have to figure out how we can live as God's people and never have any tension or pressure or, or tribulation or challenge or suffering. Certainly no suffering, that would be, that's just ridiculous, you know. Okay, let, let me try to burst that little bubble for you here to understand what we've all signed up for in here, okay? Um, I was doing, Joe Ponce and I were doing a deep dive on First Peter recently, and this is one of the things that we just, I don't know, we must have talked about this for an hour, okay? Uh, the very beginning of Peter's letter, he says, I am writing to the elect exiles. Think about the significance of those two words being right next to each other. He's writing to the elect exiles. Think about that, okay? Elect, God has shown you favor. God has showered his grace on you. And as a result, you are now in exile. You don't fit anywhere. That's what we've signed up for. We don't fit anywhere. Don't you ever feel like you don't fit? I, I'm telling you, I constantly feel like I don't fit. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder. Usually there's nobody there, but sometimes there is. You know, I just don't feel like I fit. If you, if you, I don't really feel at home here. And I'm not talking about Phoenix. Nobody feels at home in Phoenix. But I'm talking about just, you know, this world, you know. Man, I'm telling you, the last 10 years of Tom's life, how, those of you that know him, how often did he talk about this? I'm just done with this place. He said, I'm done. Now, if God's not ready to take me, I'm going to keep working. But I'll tell you what, I'm done with this place. I'm ready to go whenever he's ready for me. You know, you, you, you get that. So, elect exiles. That, that should just explain everything about why we feel like we're in such tension. Okay, right there. All right. And, and here's the other funny thing. Not only are we living in tension, but you and I also cause tension for the rest of the world. I hope you understand that. That is if you let anybody know that you know Jesus. You know, it's so nice now, isn't it, to have these devices? Because nobody sticks their Bible under their, under their arm and walks around. Anyway. Now, now we're all covert Christians, you know, because we just have our Bible on here. You know, no, people just think you're checking your uh, Instagram page when you're really reading Scripture, you know. But this is why God must ultimately do something. He's going to judge those whom he used as the instrument of judgment. <laughs> okay, again, that sounds crazy. He called the Babylonians to be his instrument of judgment. Now guess what? He's going to judge it. He's going to judge anybody. He's going to judge anybody whom he's used as an instrument of judgment against his own people. Now, we have to ask, why would he do that? Because that sounds a little bit weird, crazy, pathological, right? Doesn't it? But if you think about it, all the way back to um, Abraham in Genesis, what does he say to Abraham? 
He says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to, I'm going to curse those who curse you. This is a promise that goes all the way back to him calling Abraham. That's the first thing. And this vision here begins to explain why that's happening, but this is not the only place in the Bible where we see this. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it for you. A couple of these passages. Listen to what Isaiah says. This is Isaiah writing in the 600s, um, the uh, early 600s before any of this Babylonian stuff has happened. Okay? And he's already writing about it. Okay? And he's talking about Babylon. He says, uh, starting in verse 5, uh, this is Isaiah 47, 5 through 11. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. O daughter of the Chaldeans is a way of, is a way of saying Babylon. So anytime you see Chaldeans or daughter of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, okay? So he says, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of Chaldeans. This is very futuristic. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. See, Isaiah is saying that, that um, Babylon is going to rise up and become very powerful, but there's going to be a problem later on, okay? And then Isaiah says, this is God speaking, Isaiah says, I was angry with my people. God's angry with his people. But he's speaking about it as if it's already happened. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. I gave my people to the Babylonians. Isaiah's writing this almost 100 years before this even happens. Okay, I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You, didn't, you really treated the, the elderly poorly. Okay, with no respect. He's talking about Babylon here. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. So arrogance was involved there. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, uh, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. Do you know anybody like that? Okay. Or know the loss of children. I'm sorry, um, uh, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am, therefore no, there is no, none, no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. <laughs> I love that. Evil's going to come upon you that you will not know how to charm away. Okay? Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin will come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. And the reason is because they were used as God's instrument of judgment, but they took it too far. They're wicked, dark human beings and took it too far. One other place, Psalm 7, uh, verses 1 through 7. This is David. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like, the li like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it, uh, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is any wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemies without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it 
and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And then he says this, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift, up your, uh, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. Uh, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. O, uh, uh, over it return on high. In other words, David is saying, If I've been sinful, go ahead and let my enemies overtake me. But you know when they overtake me, they're going to go too far. So now you need to judge them, God. This, this theme is actually more common in, in the Bible than we realize. God, it seems unfair. God uses people for judgment and then he judges them. Okay? It's kind of weird. It's ironic. He chooses Egypt, Assyria, Babylon to be instruments and, 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 and then he realizes and remembers but humans are also bent towards sin. That's the problem. Humans are bent towards sin. One of the challenges with the idea of the powerless acquiring power is always that the powerless, when they acquire power, they then do what? Use the power in exactly the same way that the, uh, the, the, those who had power oppressed them. That's just the way human beings are, and God is acknowledging that here. God is acknowledging that uh, here. So in the end, the Babylonians carried out their mission, but they carried out with a little bit too much vigor and joy. And that's why in verse 15, God says, they furthered the disaster. I use them as my instrument of judgment, but they furthered the disaster. They took it too far. And I'm going to come down on them for it. And, and, and the people of God, they've been restored to Jerusalem, but they're sitting around going, it still feels like the Babylonians got away with this even though the Persians have already taken them out, it still feels like they got away with something they shouldn't have gotten away with. But God now promises he's going to judge them. And then verses 16, God will surely avenge their enemies and rebuild Jerusalem, both temporally and eternally. He's going to rebuild Jerusalem, and God's people will prosper. That reference in verse 16 to the measuring line, a measuring line is what was used in a city uh, to lay out uh, plots and lots. Okay, so like, you know, if you're into real estate, like the pad on the corner, you'd use a me measuring line, the most expensive piece of real estate in some development. You know, uh, the measuring line is measuring out where all the plots and lots in the city are going to be, the houses, the, the buildings, all, all of those um, things. And so he's, he's letting them know that Jerusalem's going to be prosperous. It's going to be just fine. So a surveyor would use the measuring line and a measuring line is different than a plumb line. We're also going to get the vision of the plumb line uh, in chapter 4. A plumb line is different. A contractor uses the plumb line. The surveyor uses the measuring line. Plumb line's like a level. Okay? And so this vision is really a vision of encouragement that although things have been really hard, even in the return from exile, the people need to keep trying. And here's what I, one of the things that I, I believe this vision teaches us. It teaches us that victory rarely means the end of hard work and trials on this earth, this side of heaven. Victory here, they had a victory. They got to come back to Jerusalem. Victory rarely means the end of hard work. Victory rarely means the end of tribulation. We kind of have that idea about our life, right? If we can just achieve this thing that is out there that we're trying to accomplish, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You've heard me say, close the deal, uh, you know, get the promotion, 
whatever, get this kind of money, win this championship, whatever that is. We just think that if we can get that, it means no more trying. And we find out that even in the wake of that victory, it, sometimes it means even more trying and even more oppression and even more challenges. And that, and that frustrates us. And that leads beautifully into the second vision. Now, <clears throat> some of you may say, what, okay, when we did Zechariah last fall, late last fall, we were showing all those Bible Project videos. Remember those videos? Okay. So we showed the one of Zechariah, and the way the guys from the Bible Project chose to present the visions was to say they're, uh, they're arranged chiastically, which they're right. They are arranged chiastically, but they're not just arranged chiastically. And what we mean by chiastically is that um, vision one kind of relates to vision eight, vision two relates to vision seven, three relates to six, and four relates to five. So the way they chose to look at the visions was to look at vision one and then look at vision eight. I'm not going to do that because the visions also do nicely line up kind of linearly as well. And vision one leads very nicely into vision two, which is just four verses. It's uh, 18 through 20. So I'm going to go through the visions in order. But here's the second vision, the horns and the craftsmen. And I lifted my eyes and saw... And behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come, the craftsmen, to terrify them. That word terrify literally means to rout or defeat. So the, the craftsmen are coming to rout or defeat uh, the horns, okay? To terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So this is God's judgment on the specific nations that afflict Israel, God's people. So it's kind of the same theme, the same idea, just presented in a different vision. By the way, okay, again, let's just realize Zechariah had eight very vivid dreams on this evening of February 15th, uh, 519. Eight so vivid dreams that he was able to write them all down. How many of you, first of all, have ever had eight dreams in one night's sleep? And how many of you ever had um, even three dreams where you could remember them well enough to write them down? Yeah, so th this, is, this must have been pretty powerful, okay? Anyway, so what are the horns symbolic of? Horns are symbolic of invincible military power. Invincible military power. The horns, therefore, are understood as four nations that do harm to God's people, but who also eventually usurp each other. Okay, so, you know, there was, um, there was the Assyrians, then there were the Babylonians, then there were the Persians, then there were the Greeks, then there were the Romans. You see how that works? So it's, it's not just the ones that terrorized God's people, but it, it's also how they usurp each other, okay? This vision is somewhat similar to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, if you've ever read those. And we're not, again, we're not exactly sure of the interpretation of the nations. It could be Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Some people argue, no, it's Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Here's what most scholars argue, and I think this is pretty good too, because it's four horns, four is like a perfect number, okay? 
or a complete number. It's not specific nations, but the totality of all nations who have God's pe- caused God's people to scatter and to bow their heads and not be able to raise them up, which he says in verse 21. So it's any of those. It's Egypt. It's Rome. Babylon. Assyria. Even the Philistines, which, by the way, get mentioned later on in the book of Zechariah. So it's anybody, any of these nations, it's just representing that. Most scholars believe that's the right interpretation of it. In any event, this is God's promise that temporarily in the world there will always be another way or power to take up where the last power left off. That's always going to happen. Okay? Someday some nation will usurp the United States as the superpower in the world. I don't know if you want me to say that. Cut that out of the recording. I don't know. I don't want any emails, okay? It's going to happen, okay? Thankfully, I'm a little older. Probably won't happen. Anyway, so. Um, but that's just what happens, okay? And, and eternally, God will eventually cut off, cut off the horns of all of those powerful nations that don't submit to him. So it doesn't matter, Really? And, and I'm sure you can tell this vision is heavily prophetic in the futuristic sense. And it reminds us that although there are worldly powers that appear invincible, I, I was alive during much of the Cold War. Anybody else in here besides the Wheelers alive as much of the Cold War? Okay, yeah. Here you go. Some Cold War survivors, okay. Remember how afraid of Russia, of the Soviet, sorry, the Soviet Union we were? We were very afraid. Of, they, were, they seemed invincible, right? Okay. But nothing is invincible when it comes to God, his power, his sovereignty, and Ronald Reagan. I'm kidding about that. Just a joke. And the reason is because, you know, he did create everything, okay? He commands all things, and he appoints all times, people, and events. He appoints all times, all people, and all events. He's sovereign. So again, the underlying major theme of Zechariah here. And we're reminded here that God always has a way to raise up powers to do his work. Those are the craftsmen. Kind of the superheroes of the Bible are the craftsmen. Okay? It's not a reference to Sears. Sears came a lot later. Okay? Um, in the Old Testament, this was often done through something called holy war. Right? So again, holy war gets a bad rap. If you've read um, uh, Josh Butler's book, uh, The Skeletons in God's Closet, you, you have a... a, a a renewed and biblical understanding of what holy war is really all about. There's this holy war. God is always doing the battling on behalf of the weak. His people were the weak people. He chose the weakest people. They couldn't win anything militarily if it weren't for God working in their lives. Think of the story of Gideon. Okay, Gideon starts out, he's called, he says, you've got to go against the Midians. And oh, by the way, there's 100,000 Midians, and they're really good at making war. They know what they're doing, Right? And so he looks at Gideon's army. He's like, you got 30,000. So you're outnumbered 100,000 to 30,000. And what does God say? 30,000 is too many. Let's cut it down to 10,000. So then he gets it down to 10,000. Now it's a 10 to 1 ratio. And, and Gideon's like, all right, here we go. And what does God say? Got to cut it down again. What's he cut it down to? 300. That's right. Cuts it down to 300 and then... Those warriors didn't even have to fight. What did they do? They, they blew horns and broke clay jars. It confused the Gideons. They turned on each other and killed each other. 
This is God acting on behalf of the weak. That's holy war. Okay? A lot of people think that holy war is the strong appropriating God's power for their agenda. That's not what it is. It's God operating on behalf of the weak and doing the job for the weak. That's what holy war actually looks like. By the way, West Point would never adopt that strategy, right? That Gideon used, okay? But there's also holy war in the New Testament. Did you know that? What does holy war in the New Testament look like? Anybody know? God still raises up power, but it's through the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ. And so, the weapons of holy war, if you want to put it into those terms, the weapons of New Testament holy war are the gospel and the church. Now, are we, are we sent out as the church to destroy other nations, to destroy other peoples? Is that what we're sent out to do? We're given the gospel to go out and proclaim God's mercy and love and compassion, to love and serve our neighbor. That's the New Testament version of holy war. Okay? So think about just in our own context here of what Redemption Church does. Holy War is working with Hustle Phoenix. Holy War is working with Alongside Ministries. Holy War is working with uh, refugees. Holy War is helping Chris Amaro at Redemption West Mesa work on Immigration Hope. Holy War is working uh, with Cody um, and Iyasu with uh, Hope for Children Ethiopia. Holy War is us working with uh, the uh, Women's Hope Center down on McDowell and 16th Street. That's our holy war. That's God working through us, calling us to do things that we can't do without His empowerment. That's us moving toward trouble, not moving away from trouble. You see that? But we're moving toward this trouble under the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. You ever think about those ministries as a type of holy war? <laughs> okay? Now, there is going to be one big last honkin' battle, okay? That's a Midwest term, honkin', okay? We use that a lot in Wisconsin. But there's going to be this one big last battle. There is going to be that. But that is God's deal. It won't be pretty, but it's God's deal. He's going to do that. We are not called to violence, but we're called to the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay? So, now don't get all... Revved up just yet, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do next week, and I'm going to read one more passage, okay? Next week we have four visions. The text will be chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 4. So it's the surveyor with the measuring line, Joshua the high priest, the gold lampstand with the two olive trees, and the large flying scroll. Um, but I mentioned earlier this uh, tension of living as an elect exile in this world from um, 1 Peter. Here's, here's Peter kind of unpacking a little bit in chapter 4 what that living as an elect exile looks like, okay? Starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's one of the most practical and insightful lines in the entire Bible. 
I, I've come to Jesus, and I don't understand why things aren't just perfect and easy now. I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of all of this trial and tribulation, and, and I, I'm surprised at the fiery trial I'm under. I thought God was supposed to take care of that. He says, don't be surprised, but instead rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't suffer because you deserve it. (laughs) That's not good suffering. You deserve that. That's not good suffering. The good suffering is when you don't deserve it. The good suffering is when you're saying, why me? That's actually the good suffering. Okay. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. Okay? It's uh, 7.34. You all owe me 11 minutes. Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for Zechariah. And and I pray that you would just give us um, insight and understanding as we study this. Um, And I pray that you would help us to uh, see how relevant it is, especially in in our context today. Um, God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for filling us with your Holy Spirit. God, we just pray that we would be able to engage with the full knowledge of being elect exiles, being uh, people that you've shown favor and grace to, but also people who really don't fit anywhere, and yet we're still going to go out and be uh, in the world, just not of the world. God, help us to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.